Amen. You may now rise as we read our scripture text today for uh, the message from Psalm 119, verses 29 through 32. Psalm 119, verses 29 through 32. Hear now the word of God. Remove from me the way of lying, and grant me your law graciously. I have chosen the way of truth. Your judgments I have laid before me. I cling to your testimonies. O Lord, do not put me to shame. I will run the course of your commandments, for you shall enlarge my heart. Let's pray. O Holy Spirit of God, illuminate our hearts now. Illuminate this text to us now that we may receive it, that we may grow, that we may know your truth more. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Last week, in our study of Psalm 119, you might remember we discussed this continued conviction of the psalmist. And we discussed last week when in seasons of spiritual heaviness, how we as the Christian life respond. We we, we, we run this race for righteousness. We, we battle in the invisible war and we stand for the truth of eternity in Jesus by faith. And the scripture, you might remember, taught us two primary lessons. One is we can't stay in that place of discouragement. Right? We, have to, we have to press on by faith. And secondly, we learn that in times of heaviness... It's really the truth of God that we have to run to. It's the word of God that enables us to move forward in faith. It strengthens us and really kindles like like a fire our trust in God to press forward. And so it's from this remembrance of God that the psalmist today now once again declares really the primary faith-driven conviction that we've seen throughout Psalm 119. And that is that walking in God's ways, that living by God's word, is only possible through a complete dependency on God alone. And then that really propels our faith into action. It quickens us in a desire to know him more, to know his word more, and to live for him. And just remember if we depart from that foundational truth and think that somehow, left to ourselves, maybe we can muster up the capability, the competence, the aptitude, the strength to live out the holiness of God on our own, we're going to fall. We're going to fall in really an independent self-dependency in which we will not glorify God. So this is, a, this is really an indispensable cornerstone of the gospel truth. We cannot trust in a life of pious good works to get to God. We cannot. It, the gospel is not rule following. The starting point is being born again. Rescued by God through repentance and brokenness before God. That is the only way to salvation. The life of faith, 
That is the only way we can do anything good at all. Because we are those redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We've been given true faith. We've been saved from the wrath of God. And we are reconciled to God and made righteous to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. And so this morning, I want us to look together at this precious, precious text from Psalm 119. If, if you brought your Bible, please open it there. If you haven't already, to Psalm 119, again, verses 29 through 32. And I want you to listen. There's a lot of words of action in this text today. Listen for the verbs. Children, some of you know what verbs are. (laughs) As you're learning, listen to this. Psalm 119, verse 29. Remove from me the way of lying, for I have chosen the way of truth. I have laid or set your judgments before me. I cling to your testimonies. I will run the way of your commandments, for you shall enlarge or grow my heart. Did you hear those words? Remove, choose, set, cling to, run, grow. You know, none of these happen accidentally. There's a deliberateness to them, a a purposed, planned thoughtfulness, right? Children, you know you don't just accidentally start running. (laughs) You have to think, I'm going to run. You purpose to run. And so we can see that this text is not just a list of do's and don'ts. It's, It's not just some rules to follow, it's, it's that conviction that to do something, to do anything good before God, before we can even live out our lives intentionally for God, we, we need God to do something, don't we? Before we're intentional, God was intentional first. Because without that inner work of the heart that God does... If we go and attempt to do something, some pious good work, for the wrong reasons, for the wrong motivation, it does not glorify God. In fact, it results in some of the worst forms of blasphemy the Lord condemns. So we've got to understand that it is the supernatural work of God that He does in us first. That's the starting point. Otherwise, we will pursue actions that are hypocritical, that are not genuine, that are hurtful to one another, and ultimately dishonoring to God. So with that as a kind of a backdrop, let me give you an outline for what we're going to discuss today. First, we have to remember that our God is an intentional, purposeful God. Secondly, we'll see that because of God's purpose, we are enabled to live out his commandments, which thirdly results in our intentionality in the actions we do to live for the glory of God. So first, let's remember how our God is intentional. God purposely created the heavens and earth by declaring them into existence. You remember that? From the very beginning, we hear in the Word of God. 
But of course, he didn't stop there, did he? But by his providence, he purposefully continues to preserve and govern all of the actions of his creation by his most holy will. But we know that actually something happened before his creation. Something in eternity past. God chose us. He purposed to choose and save his appointed saints. Ephesians 1 makes this exceedingly clear, starting in verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. I want you to think for a minute that before God created the heavens and the earth, what was there? What was going on then? Nothing. It was just God himself. It was was then that he chose you. It was then that he loved you. Before God had created anything at all, three things were already true. God saw mankind lost and in need of a savior. The eternal savior was present and the special revelation of his work to bring that work of redemption about or his gospel was already purposed. So God, way back then, had already purposed our salvation to holiness. That is incredible. Do do you see, just for a minute, do, do you see why evolutionary teaching is so pushed by the principalities and powers of darkness? It's the complete opposite of the truth. It's, this one is not just a, you know, a, a slight derivation. It is the complete opposite. Right? On one side, here's what you have. You are a random accident of genetic mutations. Have a nice life. On the other side, you were chosen before God made the Milky Way. Those are complete opposites. You're not the tail end of some ape man. You're at the very, 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 very beginning. You were loved by God then. Of course, we see this intentionality in God in in Romans 8, don't we? If you'd like to turn to Romans 8, this would be a good time to do that. You know this verse. You've probably heard it a hundred times. It is worthy of more study. Romans 28, starting in verse 28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, 
These he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Praise God for the clarity of his word. Amen? Wow, that's clear. But you know what? The church over the centuries has been actually confused about this. Unsure if God really purposed our salvation. Well, let's look at it for a moment. We know that we are called according to his purpose. Not the will of a man, not some cosmic coincidence, but according to the good pleasure of his will, as we read in Ephesians 1. Psalm 115 and 136 tells us that God does whatever he pleases. And Proverbs 19 tells us it is the purposes of the Lord that will stand forever. And Job 42 tells us that no purposes of God can be thwarted. And God said in Isaiah 46, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Notice in all of these passages, not one ounce of glory is given to man. Not one. Man's not even mentioned. We owe our existence to the sovereign will and power of God Almighty. Whom he foreknew, he predestined, he conformed, he called, he justified, he glorified. There is no work accomplished by man here. None. Only God. Now, notice, we're, let's look at where we get tripped up sometimes. Can we do that? Romans 8.29 says, God foreknew. For whom he foreknew. Do you see that in your Bibles? Eternity past began with the foreknowledge of God. But, but we have to understand this rightly, not to be tripped up into wrong doctrine. Foreknowledge is not foresight. Foreknowledge is not foresight. God did not look ahead in time to see who would choose Christ, and then upon seeing who would choose Christ, God saved back those in the past so they would be saved in the future. That is not what this verse says. It does not say that. As Bible teachers have said for centuries, God never looked in the future and learned anything. We cannot take away God's holy, sovereign omniscience. God has never learned anything. He knows everything right now and forever. Saying that God has looked into the future to see what choice man would make is a false doctrine called open theism. We need to preach against that more. God's knowledge is not dynamic, and God's sovereignty is not flexible. Children, you know, I mean, children, you know this, right? Psalm 139. Remember that? Before a word is spoken on my tongue, Lord, you knew it completely. All the days for me were ordained, were written in your book before even one of them came to pass. 
God never learned anything. He is all-knowing. Here's how our confession says it. In his sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. Nothing. But you know what? Just, Just as a little drill which is sometimes a good way to disprove false doctrines, let's go ahead and take the open theist position for a moment, okay? What if God did look into the future? What would he see? He would see that no one would choose Christ. No one. No one can come to the Father unless he's sent through me. No one comes to me unless my father draws him. It's God Almighty alone who draws, who summons, who rescues us out of our eternal perils of his wrath. The word, really, that actually we see there in John is the word to drag. He drags us with love. It's like, do you remember, remember Lot, who was saved out of Sodom? Remember the angels, like, practically had to drag him out. He's like, really, can't, do I really have to go? Wow, that's love. No one left to themselves would choose Christ. And we know this well, don't we? We know this due to the sin of our own hearts. Mankind is completely sinful. Every part of man is corrupted by sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But not just all man, but every part of man. We are totally depraved, dead in our trespasses and sins, unable to believe in Jesus, but only running from God and living for ourselves. Romans 8.29 says, For whom he foreknew. It's not foresight. It's not seeing ahead. But it's knowing. And, and you see these same words throughout, throughout Scripture, right? I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. The Lord knows who are his. And of course, he uses the same words to describe those who he did not choose. Depart from me, for I never knew you. It's not foresight. It's whom he foreknew. It's God's predetermined will. Before God created anything, he'd already made a choice that he would love his people, that he would put his saving grace upon them for eternity. And you probably know many scriptures that say the same truth. Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. This is really the abundant, merciful, gracious love of God. Powerful love of God upon us. He knew us. He gave us true faith. The faith, the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. We just read in the Heidelberg Catechism about true faith. God purposed and intentionally chose us by his sovereign, unconditional Election, he gave us true faith. God saves us according to this 
sovereign grace, not according to our will, not even according to our response. So it's an unconditional election. It doesn't depend on what man does. It's election that's up to God alone. God was also purposeful in his choosing his atoning work, where his son, Jesus, paid for, he atoned for our sins, he forgave us our sins, so we'd be saved. God purposed this among his elect. But this redemption wasn't limited in power, but it was focused upon whom he knew, whom he chose. As Acts 13 says, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. No one else believed. Only those God foreknew, chose, and elect. God also displays to us his intentionality by that effectiveness of his grace. Right? It wasn't by man's will that brings about justification or, or anything else. It was only by God's purpose to draw man to himself. As Jesus said in John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me. This is the purposed, sovereign grace of God. And, and it's, it's truly irresistible to the elect. That's why we call it irresistible grace. You're drawn, you're summoned to the Almighty King. And lastly, we know that God's purposes are cemented for eternity. God's foreknowledge setting apart his saints through redemption cannot be undone. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hands. Because this is the power of God's sovereign will. He chose and nothing can thwart that. His elect will persevere. In Romans 8, we saw that. He, whom he foreknew, he also predestined, meaning those he foreknew will be saved forever. So, there's no dropouts along the way. Right? Who, God's, who God started with in eternity past will be there in eternity future. You can't add to it or take away from it, it is purposed. It is done. It is decided by God. Because, again, don't we know that if left to ourselves, we wouldn't choose Christ, would we? We would run from him. As as, uh, Pastor John MacArthur said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. God is intentional in choosing his redeemed. His love is not accidental. His love is not random. His love is not by man's choosing or man's merit. It's only done according to the good pleasure of his will. God chose his church before the foundation of the world. God knew his church before he made the planets. Again, do you just do you see how upside-down evolutionary thinking is? The Milky Way was formed 13.6 billion years ago, and approximately 1.9 million years ago, then humans came about. Really. The truth is that before God made the Milky Way, he knew you. He put his love upon you. That's the truth. 
If you love God, it's because he first loved you. If you know God, it's because he foreknew you before you existed. But the real question is, why did God choose me? Why? You know, we talk a lot about humility. We've talked a lot about that in church. We've talked about the importance of it. This is the foundation of why we are humble as Christians. God chose us based on nothing we did. Nothing at all. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. If you are saved in Jesus Christ and you rightly believe in this undeniable biblical truth, you will be humbled by it. Which is really the only starting point for Christian joy and rest and freedom is that we know that we were saved by God based on nothing we did. Milton Milton Vincent in his Gospel Primer says, the Gospel encourages me to rest in my righteous standing with Christ, a standing which Christ himself has accomplished. For I never have to do a moment's labor to gain or maintain my justified status before God. Amen. He goes on. So I walk free from the burden of earning my salvation. I now put my energies into enjoying God, into pursuing holiness, and to ministering God's grace to others. Proclaiming, as our brother said, his excellencies. This is where the Christian lives. Our right standing before God is solely based upon the work of Jesus Christ and nothing from ours. You know, this truth is so important. It's really the number one, it's the really number one focus that Jesus pushed against in his earthly ministry. He really pushed against one thing, and it was this. And he primarily did it by speaking to the scribes and Pharisees. Listen from Matthew 23. Jesus said this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay the tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith, These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear appear beautifully outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. So even you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." Those are very strong words from our Lord, aren't they? Jesus was not bashful. He was bold for the truth of God, and he would not let it be maligned. The sovereign, eternal purposes of God cannot be trampled by men. The gospel truth cannot be distorted for our own personal, self-absorbed purposes. We cannot come to God by our works or by our religious acts. We come by repentance. We come with broken and contrite hearts that receive his mercy and grace by faith in the Son of God. 
period. It's nothing else but the gospel of Christ, the power of God unto salvation. So the Pharisees' ultimate fault was self. They were thinking that by their own merit, they could gain God's favor. And in that, what they were really doing was serving themselves, their pride, their glory, because they did not walk in faith. Rather, they walked in idolatry, making a God of their own fashion, themselves. Yet rightly knowing God's sovereign calling enables us to walk with God by faith, to live the redeemed life for the right reasons, with the right motivation, giving glory to God. Which brings us to our second point. Because of God's intentional sovereign purpose in choosing us and saving us, only by that grace are we enabled to live out his commandments. Our scripture reading today in Ephesians 2 said this, we are chosen by God, we are made a life alive through Christ, now we are able to do good works. In him, by him, through him, and for him. We we often teach young children the gospel in a very simple and condensed form. It's a good thing. We should do that. And we we, we teach little ones, maybe two-year-olds, three-year-olds, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Hallelujah. But we know it doesn't end there. Jesus died on the cross for my sins, He rose again on the third day, and he gave me a job in his kingdom. Paul says this is the consequence, if you will, of being saved, right? And listen again to Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For, or because, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Jesus for good works. That's why he created us. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, children, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He rose again on the third day and he gave me a job in his kingdom. It's so important that we and our children understand this. That God Almighty in eternity past, did not purpose to save us just so we would sit here as some kind of trophy of his goodness. No, he gave us work to do. He gave us faith that we can go forth and are driven to glorify him by our lives. Yet another trap of evolutionary humanism. You were just a protoplasm accident. What was the purpose to live then? Simply a lie of Satan. No, the truth is, by faith we are given life. And it is righteousness or good works that result. Jesus said that in John 14. I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do and greater works than these he will do. And remember, the the teachings of of James 2 that uh, uh, Pastor Suizo just read. Starting in verse 14, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says, says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? 
faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. It is faith purposed in us by God that does not just enable us to do good works, it demands that we bear forth good works. Faith in God through Jesus Christ, it's a certainty that flows through our heart that translates into good deeds. Out of this vibrant faith flows words and deeds spoken and performed out of a love for God, a love for our neighbor. It's the evidence of our salvation. So notice that faith and deeds is what James is saying is faith and deeds can't be separated. True faith results in a distinctive Christian life, a set-apart life. Ephesians 1 said, holy and blameless. And as we've recently taught, good deeds don't create a trust in God. Rather, the Christian who's exercising good deeds is bearing forth the evidence of true saving faith. The outflow, as it were, of that faith. So we're not chosen before the foundation of the world to just exist, but our faith demands good works. He's given us us work to do in his kingdom. Which brings us to our third point. Because of God's intentionality, his purpose in choosing us, he's given us grace by faith, which results in our intentional actions to live for the glory of God. By faith, we don't sit around idly, No, we are cut to the quick. We are humbled by the sovereign grace of God. We see our sin before us. And with true faith, knowing that it is only by the blood of Christ that saves us. So in our love for God that abounds, we are propelled to serve him. Now we get to our text today. (laughs) We had to go through that first. Psalm 119. We see the psalmist take up this purpose, starting in verse 29. Remove from me the way of lying and grant me your law graciously. Did the psalmist have a problem with lying? Is that what he's saying? Maybe. Maybe maybe he was tempted to lie. Maybe he'd been lied to by others and he was convicted that he was vulnerable to go down the same path. But what we do see, what's clear, is that the psalmist is speaking to God. He knows his complete dependency upon God that keeps him from lying. Left to himself, he knows he'll he'll just walk in the ways that are contrary to God's law. He'll drift away. He will break God's law. He cannot keep on the narrow way in his own strength because he knows It's the supernatural, spiritual work of God to keep him on it. And so he says, remove from me the way of lying. And indeed, we know this. Left to our own carnal inclinations, what will we do? We'll depart from God's law. If you live by the flesh, you will fulfill the desires of the flesh. But if you live by the Spirit, it's life. Thus, any ability we have to walk in accordance with God's commandments is first a spiritual activity in our hearts that then comes outward. And he goes on. 
In verse 29, grant me your law graciously. Again, he's asking God, help me live your law. He cannot do it on his own. He, we, we know we cannot just read the Bible and understand it in the natural man. Right? We, we receive by faith the word of God, and we know it's a spiritual endeavor to allow that two-edge cutting work that divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And, and here we see the psalmist, he wants the law opened to his understanding, engraven upon his heart. He wants to tangibly understand and practically apply the word to his life. So he seeks the Lord to grant him understanding. This is Actually, our brother mentioned this as well. This is what it is to taste and see that the Lord is good. To know his, his exceedingly great and precious promises. Again, Milton Vincent, in his book, he called this the luxury of the gospel. So, sometimes there's, you, you can go buy a luxury vehicle, right? There's all the nice things. But God has chosen us from eternity past. God gives us all things for life and godliness. He supplies all our needs in abundance. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He's always with us. This is where we dwell in the abundant luxury of the grace of our God. 24 hours a day. You've got your Cadillac or your Lexus, and then you've got the gospel. Amen? Which luxury will you pursue? The world, the flesh, and the devil certainly have their enticements. We talked about that last week a little bit. But they're so fleeting, aren't they? It, it reminds me of junk food. It seems good right then. Maybe while you're eating it too. But wow, afterwards, it's just downhill from there. But we have the solid bedrock of truth that comes, remember when? Before the foundation of the world. So in that enthusiasm, the psalmist intentionally lives out his faith. He makes a decision here in verse 30 to confidently choose the way of God. Verse 30, I have chosen the way of truth. Your judgments I have laid before me. I have chosen the way of truth. He's referring, referring back to verse 29. He's not choosing the way of lying, but of truth. He has repentance on his mind. A complete turning from lying now to truth. And such a decided declaration, isn't it? God, I choose you. We, we have to do this, brothers and sisters, right? Perhaps when we, we feel those moments of faithlessness, perhaps when temptation is upon you, perhaps when wrong thinking invades your mind, we have to say, no, God, I choose you. It's similar to Joshua's cry. Do you remember that? Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which are on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. 
in whose land you dwell? In whose land you dwell right now? Us. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's just a decision. It's a faith-driven purposing. I will choose the way of truth. I will set before me God. We need to actively live this out. If our minds are stayed upon Christ and his redeeming work, right? If our Colossians 3, if our mind is set upon things above, then we'll be propelled to live for him. And we're going to need to do this in our Christian life. We're going to need to say that. I know the truth. I know who I am. I'm going the way of God. So our convictions result in a hunger for more, don't they? You know that, right? Take that first bite of a really good meal and you just don't put down the fork. No, you're just getting started. Give me, give me more. So he goes on in verse 31. I cling to your testimonies. O Lord, do not put me to shame. I cling to your testimonies. You know, the word here would be best translated stuck to. I'm stuck to your testimonies. Held very close. Just connected. It's a lot like Gorilla Glue. Does anybody know about this stuff? So my boys and I have a lot of experiments with Gorilla Glue. And we have discovered that if you apply correctly, if you apply enough Gorilla Glue between two objects, those objects become essentially one thing. And if you try to separate those things, one or both of those things will be torn or destroyed with it attaching itself to one another. So this clinging is more like, Lord, I am cemented to you. And one more thing, I just want to expand this Gorilla Glue uh, illustration a little bit, if that's okay. At At the location where the two objects are connected or glued together, notice nothing else can be connected in that place, right? If I, if I glue two boards together, in that place where that glue is, I can't put another board up in there to connect it, can I? So it is with us. There's no room for anything else but God's commandments that we're stuck to in our life. Now, let us admit, some of God's commandments we might stick close to. But some of God's commandments we're not so stuck to. Which means other things can invade and stick to us. Negative influence of the world and flesh and devil. Perhaps some of God's commandments we're not so stuck close to and made vulnerable to attack. So we must fully submit our lives wholly to God and to the entire counsel of his will. How instructive for us to be glued to God's word. Again, the world and the winds are going to spiral around us. So we must cling to the truth. We must read his truth. We must study it, memorize it, speak it, proclaim it. Because in doing so, 
That's how we remember, we know we are loved. It's our only guide of truth on this pilgrim path. And there's another lesson for us here. Remember the putting off and the putting on of Colossians 3. We have to put off the old man, what does it say? And his deeds. To make room, as it were, for the righteous deeds of the new man in Christ. So before you go try to put on any good deeds, find out what you need to put off first. Otherwise, those old things are still going to be there, probably in your life, right? There's voices out there telling the Christian that they're no good. You ever, anybody ever heard those? You are no good. And that's what the psalmist says. Oh, Lord, do not put me to shame. The voices of this world are pushing against us. And so just as we have to actively pick up the Bible and read it, we have to actively say no to the lies. You're going to have to do that. Stephen Curtis Chapman, he wrote a poem about these voices. It says, but the giant is calling out my name. He laughs at me and reminds me of all the times I've tried before and failed. The giant keeps on telling me time and time again, boy, you'll never win. You'll never win. See, the world, the flesh, and the devil stand ready to shame the Christian. It's like their goal. And we can't succumb to these devices of the enemy. We must stand clinging to God's word. This is not the victory that the Lord has for us, won for us, to be shamed. There's no victory in shame. It's not the conquering servants our Lord has us to be, is to be sitting around in shame. So we must cling to his testimonies. And then lastly, we see in verse 32 that being glued to God's commandments results in us living them out. I will run the course of your commandments, for you shall enlarge my heart. So it's not a casual, mechanical, lifeless work, but it's running. It's an act of exercising with, with an energy, with a zeal, with a delight, with life. But notice he needs God to propel him once again. Enlarge my heart as I run. Charles Spurgeon related this so well. He said, God must work in us first. Then we shall will and do according to his good pleasure. He must change the heart, unite the heart, encourage the heart, strengthen the heart, enlarge the heart, and then the course of life will be gracious and sincere, happy and earnest. In other words, run to God, and he'll make you to run all the more swiftly in his commandments. Our hearts must be open to God, at liberty, free to run, not encumbered by weights, not not encumbered by confusing ideas or worldly attractions or self-preserving motivations. No, we run this course of his commandments free, 
free. Like Peter describes, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Be ready, be prepared, be available. Like Jesus said, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Be ready. Now, since we're talking about running, just curious, could I get a show of hands? How many of you do you think you could get up right now, perhaps tomorrow morning, and run a marathon? Where's, where's Dan and Rebecca? Because <laughs> they could. <laughs> but seriously, are we ready to run a marathon spiritually? Because that's the calling. How are you training? How are you preparing? How are you, how are you actively resisting the world's enticements and choosing the way of truth? How are you doing that? Are you depending upon God? Are you appealing to God so that you may run freely? Are you clinging to his testimonies so that you may not be put to shame by crumbling in faithlessness when you get to mile 20 of this spiritual pilgrim path. As Paul said, I run thus not with uncertainty, thus I fight not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. We remember that we were chosen on, on purpose by God before the foundation of the world. Harnessed with that truth and faith, we go and we live intentionally. And we must be deliberate in our Christian lives. We must purpose to consider our actions, our thoughts, what we let in our ears, what we let come in our, in our mind, in our eyes. Do we think about it? What spiritual food are we partaking of? Remember that our God is an intentional God. He chose us, he saved us, and so we are enabled by faith to intentionally live for the glory of God. So just to end with some application. We intentionally, by faith, set aside time to commune with our God every day. We deliberately prioritize the things of our Lord and the things he loves first in our life. We purposely say no and free from the lies and giants that tempt us away from his truth. We expressly decide to hope in God. We determine to trust in the Lord with all our hearts and lean not on our own understanding. So may we take inventory of our faith lived out. Be intentional. You won't just fall into it. Because remember, we're in a battle. God's given you faith to use, so put it into practice. Go serve someone. Re receive the exhortation of our brother from a few weeks ago. Go bear someone's burdens. Just go find someone. Shouldn't actually be that hard to find. Husbands, go lay down your lives and cherish your wives. Wives, by faith, go help your husbands in the fear of God. 
Go forgive your brother and reconcile. Go love someone that wronged you. Listen to the word of God and be convicted. This is intentionally taking what God has given us by faith and deliberately saying, I choose the way of truth. By faith, we are driven, like the psalmist, to appeal to God earnestly, to choose his way, to cling to his testimonies, to run the course of God's commandments. So dear family, may we seek the Lord. May we remember the solid truth of the sovereign hand of God in our lives and rest in that. He loves you today. Amen? But he loved you in eternity past as well. That's when he chose you. All the way to eternity future. So let us go, Christians. Let us set in Christ ourselves the way of his commandments. Let us trumpet the call of your king in your life today. You are free. So in the joy of your intentional God, Go be intentional for him. Use your energy, your time, your resources, your faith to go enjoy God, to pursue holiness, and to minister his grace to others. Amen. Let's pray. O gracious God, Father in heaven, we thank you for choosing us before the foundation of the world, for giving us faith, for calling us out, for setting us apart, that we may live and have life today. Oh God, help us now, as you purposed, that we would purpose with that faith you've given us to glorify you in our words, in our deeds, every day of our lives. In Jesus' holy name, amen.